welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Dan Garrett, co-founder and CEO of Farewell. In addition to his master's in structural engineering from Oxford, Dan studied global innovation design at the Royal College of Arts in Tokyo. It was while he was in the Japanese residential home there that he was first confronted with the ineffectiveness of death care and saw an opportunity to reinvent outdated processes by leveraging technology. Since its launch in 2015, Farewell has become the UK's largest will writer. Apparently one in every 10 wills is written by Farewell and is the fastest growing funeral service provider. Farewell is backed and supported by some of the best investors and entrepreneurs in Europe, from the founders of Zoopla, TransferWise, and Headspace, to Kindred Capital, and many others, including the latest round led by growth experts, Highland Europe. Well, I have been waiting to have this conversation with you, Dan, ever since I first had my intro call with your team. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Such a great intro. I really appreciate it. I think the industry that you're tackling is just such an interesting one. And when I first heard about Farewell, I was like, huh, that seems like such a good idea. How come no one thought about it? But I'm really looking forward to getting into the details. What I think I want to start with is your experience in Japan. I know that you said it was when you had your uh, work experience in Japan that you came across this pain being in the Japanese residential home. What about that experience moved you to start Farewell? I've always been quite interested in designing stuff that is quite sort of unsexy, I guess is a good way to put it. And the reason for that is I think you can often have the biggest impact with kind of design thinking and design methodologies if it's like a very ignored space. So the project I'd worked on before that at the Royal College of Art with my amazing friend Gina, who now is the CEO of a company called Ergo, was this sort of inflatable postural support system for people with particular types of disabilities. And it's like the equipment is highly technical. It's horribly designed. People have to sit in it all day. And you just think, I know this sounds a bit selfish, but you look, you look at it and think, God, if we sprinkled a bit of design magic into that, the outcomes would so, be so much better for the people using it. So I'd worked on that. I'd worked on a major project I did at the Royal College of Art was about redesigning how plastic pellets were manufactured and used, which you know is not something that most designers get up in the morning and think about. But I've had quite an agnostic approach to where and how you can have an impact. A lot of people who start companies, the classic story is I had to deal with this problem myself and then I went away and fixed it. And that's great because it gives you loads of power and loads of insight. You are your customer. Whereas for me, I think I've always found it really interesting. What are things that are being ignored? And in a way, you could say it's lazy because I wouldn't call what we do now low-hanging fruit. But you know, if you think about the death industry, it really is the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched by not just design, but technology and any form of customer centricity. So if I was to rock up right now into the global payments space or into fashion or any number of e-commerce verticals that have incredible talent and companies working on them, I'd have no idea where to get started. So so actually, kind of, you can take something like the death industry and be like, oh my God, no one's really touched this. So I think there's a bit of that that I've always found appealing. We have this kind of huge delta out there. There's just a massive opportunity to have an impact on customers who are using things at the end of the day. And then I always gravitated towards things to do with death and dying. Like my 
I've been asked this question so many times and I, I don't know the answer. There's a couple of things. One, out the back of my garden where I grew up in Golders Green in London is a crematorium. And I always just went for walks in there and stuff with my parents. And it's like really beautiful. And I think that gave me a slightly different take on it. And then I also did my master's thesis at the Royal College of Art on designing for dementia. So I've always just had an interest in people aging. I just can't get over it. It's the craziest thing ever that we're all going to die. I think there's some element of curiosity. You have to be comfortable with death and maybe curious about this topic that people don't typically talk about. I think so. I remember being a kid and if my parents would go out or something, I would be terrified that they were going to die. That's a really standard thing in sort of kids' neurological development. Is you know, If someone's not in the room, it, you basically feel like they're dead or there's very little uh, in between the two. So I think it's something that I've worried about loads growing up. I still think it's terrifying to so many people and that's why you kind of end up ignoring it. And I think that's how it you know, then bears out into the industry, why it has been ignored so much is... You just can't bear to think about it. To answer your question more directly, when I was in Japan, I was based in a geriatric home and we had this amazing team of design researchers, anthropologists, ethnographers. And I felt like we just really missed the point of being there. All we focused on was the, the physical side of aging. So kind of getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs rather than the fact that everyone who was there was thinking about dying, worried about dying. And in an institution that's this kind of set up to take you over the line until you are dead. But we didn't even manage to talk about it. And you know, we were a bunch of people who were kind of deeply trained in getting to the bottom of the biggest problems that people are struggling with. So I left there feeling how interesting that as people who specialize in this, we haven't even got close to talking about it. So interesting, Dan. So you came back from Japan with this thought in your mind. Tell me a little bit about what the current situation was. What was the process that people went through if they lost someone to get these services? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Wills was our first product and we launched that in December of 2016. Traditionally, well, the vast majority of Wills in the UK and all over the world are written face-to-face with a solicitor. What normally happens is you'd ask for a recommendation from a family member or a friend or just someone who already worked in the legal sphere. You get in touch with someone, book an appointment that tends to be anywhere from two to six weeks in the future. Then you turn up there and you tend to have a kind of hour-long, 90-minute appointment with a solicitor and they ask you lots of comprehensive questions and then they'll go away, send you a draft copy of the will a couple of weeks after that. You'll have a read of it, give them any feedback and then you might either go into the solicitor's office to finally sign it or they might send you the documents. It has to be signed, so it has to be physically, it can't be electronically signed. So all in all, it can take three to eight-ish weeks. Tends to cost about... 300 to 500 pounds normally per individual will. It's not terrible at all. Most people who use their solicitors have a good experience. We're not out to get solicitors. They're, for the most part, lovely people who do a brilliant job. The interesting thing is that 95% of most people's wills are actually pretty similar. It's not like the solicitor sits down each time and thinks, oh, I wonder how am I going to phrase this legally? There's, there's standard clauses, there's standard precedents. And actually, the solicitor will have software on the computer that helps them draft it. What we do is we disintermediate it and we very specifically use uh, design as a way to, to guide someone through an experience of dealing with something that they're not familiar with. There are technicalities inside writing a will that can be quite complicated, but we use that to 
break down the complications in it. So you can have a very simple online user interface. It tends to take 15 minutes, roughly, to about 25 if you've got a bit more of a complicated estate to go through this process. Then we algorithmically generate the will. And crucially, every single will that we generate is checked by hand by a will specialist in our team. Our head of legal is on the Law Society's wills and equity committee. We're, we've got we've got six solicitors in the business. It's not trying to pull any legal punches. So start to finish, it tends to be 15 minutes to draft the will. We normally check the will either the same day or the next day. I think our average about four and a half hours. And it's comprehensive. You know, you get a letter saying, check these individual bits. There might be a problem here. Can you confirm this part? And then it's ready to uh, sign, which you can do with a neighbor or a colleague or the rest of it. That's the kind of nuts and bolts of the will writing side of things. Every part of the experience we've made as easy to understand and use as possible. And we're now the highest rated business globally on Trustpilot for anything financial or legal. We have over 8,000 reviews at 4.9 out of 5, which is pretty tricky to get. So we've got pretty good at it. So that's the kind of major difference is you take the solicitor out of the equation or the face-to-face element of it. And then we have the volume a sort of answer to that. So great ops tooling, great front-end website, and teams of people who are really trained in, in kind of going through these things diligently. Then on the probate end of things, it's kind of a similar story. Often what you do in probate is it's all the legal and financial stuff you have to deal with after someone dies. It can be really horrendous. One of our angel investors who is a chartered accountant, who has been the CEO of a couple of different companies, amazingly financially literate and proficient, told me that he'd cried twice in the last 10 years and both of them had been dealing with probate for one of his parents. It's so frustrating. You can have to deal with 30, 40 different financial institutions at once and you have to be very careful in how you kind of draft letters to them and request for documents and the rest of it. This is the conventional legal services have been known, and that doesn't mean they all do it, to really overcharge for this because it can be the sort of thing where you're doing hundreds of hours of work and sometimes people will charge on a kind of percentage of the estate basis. So if you die with a million pounds or something, you could end up paying £20,000 for probate, which is quite material. What we do similarly is we have a really easy to use website where we help to get some of the information from somebody who's just lost somebody else. And then we have our own proprietary technology in-house that helps us automate the vast majority of, of interactions with financial services. And we have an expert team in-house to make it as efficient and sort of easy to use as possible. We also have automated updates that go out to the family on a kind of weekly basis that explains the situation that it's in because it can take multiple weeks to do it. On average, we do what's called a grant of probate for about £600, which is less than a fifth of the rest of the market. So it's a huge difference in the application of technology and again, disintermediating expertise. The funerals side of things, the piece of the puzzle we take out of the equation there is the high street funeral director. Again, we've got nothing against high street funeral directors for the most part, some of the most compassionate, caring, brilliant, lovely people I've ever met. The number one thing that matters when somebody you love has died over and over again, everywhere in the world, all kind of qualitative user research and quantitative, the number one thing that matters is doing right by the person who died. So having a funeral that truly represents them. Over the last kind of 100 years, that's departed from the funerals that are on offer on the high street. 
you tend to have this kind of like black hat, Victorian, slightly old fashioned, weird funeral. And the fact is, you know, your dad's just died or your husband's died or someone you really care about. And you kind of go through the motions or there can be that inclination to go through the motions to do it. The average cost of a funeral in the UK has more than doubled in the last 10 years enormously expensive one in eight people goes into debt in order to pay for a funeral and it has this formality to it rather than really helping people understand what they want so we take the funeral director out of the equation you can come to us and the first step of the process is deciding what type of funeral you'd like obviously it's been strange times over the last year with coronavirus but you can't have big attended funerals one of the things we specialize is something called direct cremation which is a funeral without a service So in that instance, we would collect the body and we work with private ambulance networks all around UK, correct the body, carry out the cremation and then hand deliver the ashes back to the family. And then it's on them to do what they want. They could set off fireworks on top of the South Downs. They could have a picnic on a beach. And so it's this kind of detaching of the rigmarole of a funeral and saying to a family, hey, where did this person grow up? Who did they love to hang out with? Where's their favorite restaurant? How can you really bring a funeral to life like that? We also organize attended funerals. At the moment, that can be sort of size-restricted gatherings in a more conventional crematorium or something like that. And we really help the person or the family to think through the elements of that funeral that are going to personalize it. So the right music, orders of service, flowers, who's speaking on the particular day to make sure that it feels exactly right for them. All of that we do for, you know, on the direct cremation side of it, we charge, it's from under a thousand pounds. And the average cost of funeral in the UK is about £4,900. On the attended funeral side of things, it's about one and a half thousand to two thousand pounds. So saves a lot of money, but also makes sure that it really is about the person who's died and what their family needs. There's so much in what you've said and what comes across when you're talking is that customer centricity and empathy that you've put in every step of the way, whether it's wills or probate or funeral services. And I can see that being so attractive when someone is going through a loss. But I'm curious to understand when you started, when you didn't have a brand, you didn't have a way to build trust. How did you actually go about getting your first few customers? I remember the day when we had the first customer where I didn't know who it was. And I was like, who would do that? The company was like a few weeks old. I've never heard of this person and they're entrusting us with their will. And yeah, sure, we did a great job. I think a lot of our trust has come from the quality of product design. So if you're using something that feels incredibly well built, and you can see if you go on our website now, it's like, the brand is, is really tight and well-formed and the product experience is incredibly slick. I think that helps to engender trust a lot. For us, it's been about a lot of our growth on the world side of the business has been through partnerships. So we work with banks, insurers, financial institutions, but where we really started off in partnerships was working with charities. The reason why we work with charities is to help them with legacy fundraising. It's this thing that's not that known about in the in kind of most circles, but actually about a third of the income of most of the biggest charities in the UK is through gifts and wills. I think it's close to three billion pounds a year that goes to the third sector through people including uh, a charity in their will. What lots of big charities do, like Cancer Research and Macmillan, and increasingly small and medium-sized charities is run campaigns where they go to their supporters and say, would you like to write your will for free? And then you don't have to include a gift in the will, but someone includes 
2% of their estate, that's a really sizable donation to the charity. So this has historically been the absolute most cost-effective way to raise money for the third sector. What happened before we came along was that you would run a campaign in, let's say, like the 90s or noughties, and you might do a TV campaign or a bunch of billboards or something, and they'd have a network of solicitors who'd write your will for free, and you'd get a kind of pack in the post about how to do it. Very, very effective. Raised like hundreds of millions of pounds over the years. The worst marketing job in the world because you run a campaign and you find out the results 25 years later. What we've been able to do because we have this kind of fundamentally digital product is run a campaign, A-B test it, run it on Facebook, on Google, on the kind of multi-channel side of things and get the results within 24 hours. So we're incredibly proud to work with six of the 10 biggest charities in the UK. And overall, we've helped to raise money for over a thousand UK charities. And we have a sort of platform to help them understand the efficacy of their legacy fundraising. So they refer business to you then? Is that your biggest channel for getting customers through referrals from your partners? That's on the will side of our business. Yeah, partnerships is the biggest driver of customer numbers. I don't know any other company in the death industry, but how do you measure how well you're doing? We use pretty standard measures. NPS is always the top kind of consumer metric, which stands for net promoter score. For anyone listening who doesn't know, send out a survey. We do it 28 days post-registration. So anyone who registers on our site, not just completes it, because we also want to get the feedback from people who don't complete it. They get an email that says, from 1 to 10, to what extent would you recommend farewell to a friend or family member? The calculation behind NPS is a little more complicated than just averaging the score. I think all of us are really firm believers that that's a a great way to drive center to get a handle on product quality. We use lots of other sources of qualitative insights. So user research, customer satisfaction, CSATs. Uh, we do have a lot of different measures on our customer support team as well. But yeah, NPS is the North Star for customer experience. Is there anything in terms of how people are now writing wills with farewell that shows you that you've changed how people think about wills. Yes. You talk to people, you're putting the person who died at the center of it. Is there any anecdotes that show you that that's really changing how people are thinking about this process? The metric we use for that is the percentage of people who write a will with us who include personal messages or funeral wishes in their will. So that's not just like dotting the I's and crossing the T's legally. It's actually saying, okay, well, like you've taken the time to write something inside it. Don't know if anyone has seen... P.S. I Love You with Gerard Butler, great film. It's very much on point with that. So so before we started, 1% of the industry um, had any of that sort of engagement in it. If you wrote a conventional will with a solicitor, it's pretty kind of dry, formal document, does what it says in the tin. What we really started to encourage the people using our site to do was leave comprehensive funeral wishes. That was part of the motivation for starting our funeral business in the first place is 80% of the people leaving funeral wishes weren't saying what I want a slightly dreary traditional ceremony in my local authority crematorium. They were saying, I want everyone to wear bright colors and go to the pub afterwards. And I want this person to give a speech and I don't want her to come. (laughs) And just this kind of like funny, interesting, really warm little like vignette of someone who uh, was writing the will. And also on the personal messages side of things, really getting people to think through if you have an heirloom or something, if you have something that's really meaningful to you and you think... I really want this person to have it after I die. From all the research we did, almost everyone has those types of things. But then you're like, you're speaking to a solicitor, I'll just deal with it somewhere else. And then those stories just get lost. So I've got some great examples of those that I am allowed to talk about publicly because we've got permission from our customers. I remember there was one where... 
somebody left 500 pounds to their colleagues in their will and just wrote this message that said, buy a box of chocolates for everyone in the office apart from Carol in HR. I just thought, how amazing, how absolutely incredible. And then you get these just outpourings of love. As one of our customers who's about 45, he's got two young daughters. Him and his partner are separated and lives up north. The only other stuff in his will is his collection of motorbikes. And then he's just left this letter to each one of his daughters and left them something really meaningful. And it's like, you can't make it up. You sat down to write that as the world's greatest marketer, you wouldn't even get close to it. So I think it is that the thing that we're all terrified about when it comes to dealing with death is losing the love that you have between you and someone else. So it's kind of this weird mishmash of, yeah, you're writing well in the first place, but actually you're doing that because of the people and things that you love and you want to take care of them. So what we try and do is slingshot all the negative emotions that you have about it. of like, I can't be bothered. It's going to take age. It's going to cost a fortune. I don't want to have to think about death into the positive side of things, which is like, this is why I'm really doing it. It can be just as meaningful to you to say something like that to a best friend or a sister or, or a daughter as it is for you to decide who gets your house. I think that's why we've had real growth in our service. That's why people really love what we do is that at the end of the day, it's not just about the practicalities. Do you think the way you're doing wills and you've approached the whole debt services has changed the demographic of the customer base? I feel like maybe you're reaching out and more people are thinking about writing wills than they would have until much later in their life. We do have a very broad demographic age-wise. We have youngest customers, 18, legal age, right? I think more than 10 customers who are over 100. It's pretty broad. And within one standard deviation, it's a big age range. I've seen some stats about the average age to make a will not on our site. Our average customers are five to seven years younger, which makes a bit of sense. We've done research around it before. The average time between saying to yourself, okay, I know I need to write a will, had a kid, bought a house, whatever it is that triggers that, and getting around to writing it is about seven years. So a lot of the innovation here, you can really big up all the cool stuff we do inside the product. But it is at the end of the day for most people just about time, convenience and money. And we do it very well. But we've taken away people's excuses for for longing it out for five or seven years. I was looking at Farewell and doing some research on it. And I was amazed at the stats that I found in the short years that Farewell has been around. 10% of all the wills in the UK, second biggest probate, and the fourth largest funeral provider. That is absolutely phenomenal. And as you know, this show is for entrepreneurs. So I was wondering, how did you do this in such a short time? Great question. There's no good answer here. It's been incredibly long and painstaking and hard. And we've done a few things really well. We've done a bunch of things not well at all. And there's never been a day or a month where I'm like, this is it, we've cracked it and it's just scaling like crazy. I probably know two people who had just crazy either viral growth or anything else. So I think that is a common misconception because you know I'll listen to podcasts like this, which are brilliant and inspiring. And often the stories from the biggest companies are ones of just crazy overnight growth. And even for the successful founders that I know, it's very rarely the story. So I'd say there's a few phases and it depends if you're a first-time or second-time founder. I'm a first-time founder, so is my co-founder. I really can't emphasize the extent to which we had no idea what we were doing. So we spent a year and a half just figuring out stuff, like 
trying to get to kind of initial product market fit. And that's when you basically have no team at all. You know, we built our team five or six people. Admittedly, everyone was brilliant. But in evolutionary terms, you're like an amoeba and you're just starting to grow a leg and you're just clawing your way out of just the swamp of not knowing anything and starting to get some traction because the biggest flywheel effect is more customers. So you just have to claw your way through customers, have to try and acquire them to learn how to make the product better. And the more customers you get, you start making the product better faster and the better the product gets, then you just have all these opportunities for growth. So I would say we have an incredibly product-led approach to it, but that is really amplified by not having much experience between my co-founder and the other people in it. And it was just hours and hours of work, like seven days a week. And then gets to the point where we raised our Series A and until that point, there's maybe 20 of us in the company. And most people had never done the jobs that they were doing before. And then you start to have the ability to bring on some people with a bit more experience who can help you reduce the, the amount of mistakes that you make and just provide a bit of clarity and leadership and decisiveness to the actions. Then I think for us, when we started diversifying our product range between launching our Wills product and then launching our probate product, I think we hit a, a million pound run rate for that within a month of launching it compared to three years of scaling the Will's business. And then we launched our funerals business. And I think we hit a million pound run rate within about four or five days of launching it. And that was launched by Matt Morgan, who co-founded the fastest growing funeral company in, in California as well. There's no answer. And that's what makes it interesting. VCs have playbooks for doing things, but every organization is different. All I can say is that for us, it's been so hard and it carries on being hard and it's interesting and fun. And now we've had the opportunity to build out an absolutely stellar team. But I think it's a question of momentum. Just got to build the momentum, add in the right people, start to make fewer mistakes, keep the pace of decision-making high. But the focus was on product and getting customers. Yeah. That was your initial focus to get the flywheel moving. And when you got it in the first business line, you added probate and then did the same thing. Yeah. The better the product, the faster it grows. They're really well correlated. And it can be really tempting, particularly from more of a financial background. But I think we've had phases of the business where we're much more P&L focused or we're like very budget driven. Last year, we grew 800%. I grew our top line 800% and our revenue is already decent. So we're very good at executing commercially. And I think balancing commercial execution with having that real belief that product brilliance is the right thing to drive growth. That's some of what's worked for us in combination with talent. Talent is just everything. Learning how to hire people and learning how to onboard people brilliantly, learning how to structure teams is never talked about enough at all. Well, you're too humble. But let me then ask you about your marketing. My background is B2B, so I have some knowledge there. Curious, what is your marketing strategy for a product like what you have and for the industry that you serve? There's a couple of things here. So on probate and funerals, quite a lot of the traffic is at need. Someone's died, you've got a 48-hour window to sell them a funeral, which means that certain types of marketing, if we're going to be on Facebook or something, it's just not going to be effective at all. So a significant proportion of the business is search marketing, organic and paid, which means to be really at the cutting edge of search marketing, you need great data, you need empowered, sophisticated product teams to be good at it. And you need this constant high-velocity iteration cycle. So a decent chunk of the business is fueled through search. We've done everything from TV, print campaigns, door drops, direct mail, door-to-door sales. That was a great experiment. You just work through channels in a really methodical way. I'd say the part of the bet for us is the interconnectedness of our products. 
we're acquiring hundreds of thousands of Will customers and we have this great NPS score. They're really engaged with the brand and our products. And we're introducing them to the fact that beyond Wills, we also do probate and funerals. And we have a lot of our customers coming back to use us either when someone they know has died or they lose a parent. Similarly, from our funerals business, often people who are going through a funeral will need to organize probate as well. And then when you deliver such a great service, the family's really happy with, you can spend ages thinking about how do we cross-sell the practice if you deliver a great service. People will actually just ask you, George, you know who had to go through probate? And it's like, oh, we should have a probate business. And then you do probate for people and they're inheriting money and then they need a will. So the kind of virtuous circle uh, continues, but all of it hinges on delivering the best possible customer experience. We have played around with some more expensive above the line channels. And that is something we want to lean into a bit more. But it's still the fact that it's quite early days. Direct response stuff is scalable, interesting. There's lots of volume there and we do a great job on capitalizing on it. I want to get to the hiring and culture part that you just talked about. But before that, I would obviously be amiss if I didn't talk about the pandemic, given the industry that you're in. I'm sure there was a huge spike in volume and you probably had to hire a lot of people and do a lot more wills. That seems like the obvious bit to me. But what I'm curious about is, do you think the pandemic has changed anything fundamental in how people view death-related services? What do you feel has changed permanently? And what do you think will go back to being the same after all this is over? I think the most profound change will be in the funerals industry and will be in how people look for and buy funerals in the first place. Things were starting to move away from the high street over the last couple of years. Just the beginnings, still the vast majority of funerals are organized on the local high street. I think it probably accelerated that transformation by kind of five or seven years, roughly. I don't have some amazing Wizard of Oz spreadsheet that I used to calculate all the future of these things, but that's the kind of feel that I've got for it, just looking across everything. There's been a lot of focus on the funerals industry. Lots of people have been to or engaged with the funeral over Zoom. I think lots of people have to organize a funeral where they haven't been able to go to the funeral director in person. So I think it just shakes the tree of tradition a bit. And I do reckon we're able to track and see developments in the amount of search traffic for people looking for funerals. And it's been growing 15% year on year for the last five years. And in the last year, that was about 50% jump in it. So I think this stuff is really starting to accelerate. Plus the fact that it's a generational shift as well. There's the average generational gap when you're losing a parent is 28 years. And average age of someone dying in the UK is 78 to 82. So you have people who are 40 to 60 who are organizing funerals for when their parents pass away, who have worked for their entire careers on a computer. They do banking online. They travel tons of trusted services that they use online. They use Airbnb to organize a holiday. And I think it's just becoming increasingly discordant with people who have to organize a funeral to think, oh, you know where I'm going to go to the like, local funeral director that I've walked past or driven past before. I think the, the brand of the high street funeral is becoming less and less relevant. Interesting. There's a tight connection between brand and culture and the people that you hire. I imagine that the kind of people that you employ within Farewell are certain type of people that have that empathy. So I would love to hear your philosophy on hiring and building culture. Me and my co-founder, Tom, got trained in hiring by 
the hiring oracle, an amazing woman who I love called Michelle Coventry, who is an advisor partner at our seed investor, Kindred Capital. And Michelle spent ages with both of us being like, okay, how do you write job specs? How do you run a hiring process? Just really teaching us about having white glove hiring processes where for every candidate, they were as good as possible. There's a kind of system of questions when we're doing initial interview screens that we developed that we felt was incredibly good at both kind of accounting for bias, but also helping to understand exactly what someone wants to do next. And I say to abstract it, particularly early stages in a company, the two things that I'd say are most important are don't underestimate or underinvest in hiring. When people are like, oh, you need to spend 30% of your time on hiring, really do it. And you know, a lot of our team are, are really trained as technical recruiters. We now have a brilliant in-house talent team, but all of us would use applicant tracking systems like Workable or other stuff like that. All of us would be well-versed in doing Boolean searches on LinkedIn and building applicant sort of pipelines of 150, 200 candidates and then using different tools and techniques and products to reach out to those candidates in a way that feels really customized to shortlist them to do 30, 40, half an hour screening calls in a week. There were long periods of time where all of us who were senior in the company were just racking up all these phone screens one after another throughout the week. I've had days when I've done 15 of them in a day. I've come to learn that's definitely not the right hiring process and you can screen people better further up the funnel. But if you're nine people and you're adding in a tenth, and if they're great, that's got a 15, 20% influence on your culture. So until you get yeah. to 50 people, every single person, just like go the extra mile for hiring. And then I'd say one of the most important parts of the equation when it's that early stage it's just a question like, what do you want to be doing in a few years' time? What are your career goals? And to get a real honest understanding of that, if you're misaligned in terms of what the role is and what someone wants to do, it's just not going to work out. And I've had that. We hired a brilliant copywriter who's our first ever copywriter at Farewell. And I asked her that question and she said, well, you know what? I've been doing agency copywriting for 10 years. And she was um, phenomenal. And she was like, I've been doing agency cop- copywriting and I really want to do freelance copywriting and be a yoga teacher. I was like, no, you really want an in-house job. You want to change the way the world deals with death. You can just completely revolutionize this industry. And she got all jazzed up and took the job. And a month later, she was like, I want to be a freelance copywriter and be a yoga teacher. So you have to listen. People know what they want to do. And it's it's disingenuous and not going to work out if you don't really try and get alignment between what the company needs and what someone's looking for. So I think that really helped to build a culture where until fairly recently, we had incredible retention statistics. We had almost 100% retention for a team of over 100. No one had ever left unless they'd been fired, which is really unusual. Now, what starts to happen is Angela, who's our chief of staff, is exceptional at this kind of thing and has built out a people team. We now have a 10-strong people team. We also did a lot of work on articulating what our, our behaviors are as a company. And we hire blobs and blobs is an acronym. We did this company-wide bit of work to come up with blobs. And we have like blob of the week and stuff like that. And that's been really, really well adopted across the company. I definitely recommend even though it's cheesy. What does the blob stand for? The blob stands for BU, look after each other, offer help and bias to action. And it completely hits every note of what makes our culture special. There's this incredible level of kindness and camaraderie inside the business. Like you say, it comes from people who are inherently 
find it appealing to work on death in the first place. I think it's people who just want to help other people. It's those four things. Be you. We like really fundamentally believe that everyone should be able to be themselves at, at work and bring their whole selves to work rather than just a kind of professional persona. Look after each other. If a teammate's down or not developing well enough or whatever, offer help. Just there are a thousand opportunities created a day here. We really take pride in internal promotions, sideways moves, um, and we've built a whole culture of kind of progression inside the company around that. And then bias to action, just you know, don't obsess over whether something's exactly the right decision. Just push it along. If you're right 65% of the time, then you're absolutely smashing it. I have one last question before I have this rapid round. I really hope we can get to both of them. My last question for you is, you're obviously in a growth industry, you're flying high, you're doing really well. But what keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about in terms of risk to your growth? In terms of risk to our growth, I think the biggest risk is obsession with budgets and obsession with growth itself. I know that sounds stupid, but I really profoundly believe that the best products will win and grow the fastest. And it can be much harder to articulate that. It's very difficult to have, even if you have something like MPS, a dashboard saying, our MPS is so amazingly high already, it's hard to push it forwards. And then all the financial metrics are so easy to, to track that it can just kind of pull you down into a just purely financial vein of thinking. And I don't think that's what builds great products or great businesses. So, so I say it's the temptation to run your business with financial imperative. I think that's uh, well said because especially when you get into that growth and scale phase, you tend to focus on those numbers to see the scale go faster and faster and almost get addicted to it. So I think that's it's good advice for people. So now comes the last rapid round, which is just questions that don't really have anything to do with your business, but hopefully they're fun. And I always start off with your favorite book, any book recommendations, can be fiction, nonfiction, anything that you'd go back to or made an influence on you. Jonathan Livingston Seagull, greatest book ever. It's about the pursuit of greatness. It is actually about a seagull discovering what it means to be great. It's also only about 40 pages. <laughs> so big win on all fronts. But yeah, hands down my favorite book. What about productivity tool? Do you have one? I'm possibly the least productive person who's ever lived. So I don't know. I've tried everything. Best productivity tool, meditating every morning in terms of its effect that it has the rest of my day. Nice. Do you do it every day? Yep. Excellent. Your favorite European city? It's got to be London. Grew up here. Love it. Best place in the world. Nice. Okay. And last, your favorite quote? George Bernard Shaw one about communication. It's like the biggest issue in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And I always think about that. If you and a direct report are disagreeing or an investor, board member or a colleague, it's actually you very rarely disagree on what the right thing to do is, but you just have different contexts or you just haven't communicated something properly. I always think about that. It's always true. And thank you so much for coming on my show. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope loads and loads of people um, write their wills in time. Oh, thanks. Put loving notes in them, make it more human. And, and I'm, I'm going to be on the sidelines watching you guys grow. Amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.